that, Shirley? Well, we were on our way to here to meet up with Roddy, Russell, and all of you, all the rest of you. And uh, they're prepping for the coronation on the 6th of May. And uh, they're coming out of the Buckingham Palace, the bands. So I thought, right, let's get it out there. Free the IPPs. There's lots of people about. There's going to wonder what's the IPP. Maybe they might Google it. So that's why I do it. Do you always, if you get the chance? Yeah, yeah, always. If there's anything going on, I'm I'm there. Free the IPPs every time. Yeah. So you tell me on the way. It's the 27th of April, 2023. I'm looking at a video recorded by Shirley De Bono on her phone. We're sat in the stuffy, nondescript room we've hired in Westminster to gather with some campaigners before we all head to a big political debate on IPPs. Shirley has been campaigning against IPPs, which stands for Imprisonment for Public Protection, for nearly 15 years. She began campaigning after her son Sean received an IPP sentence for a street robbery without violence. He received a two and a half year tariff back in 2005 and he's still serving the sentence nearly 18 years later. The now abolished Imprisonment for Public Protection sentence or IPP is an indeterminate sentence. It has no fixed length of time. Today, there are currently 2,916 people trapped in prison on an IPP. None of them know when they're getting out or if their IPP sentence could actually mean life in prison. Okay, so say what you were going to say. About Leroy. Yeah. Um, I've had had an email from Leroy. I first met Shirley two years ago. We met in a cafe in Cardiff where she lives. She'd sent me an article from a local Welsh paper about a prisoner who was 15 years over his tariff for the robbery of a mobile phone. What was the two-year tariff for? It's two-year tariff. Leroy done a street robbery of a mobile phone in 2006 with no violence, just took the phone. As she talked, I began to hold my breath and my tears. I couldn't quite believe it. What she said about the situation for the prisoner profiled in the article was so shocking that over a two-hour meeting, I knew it needed to be documented somehow. story out there into newspapers, begging me to get in touch with reporters, journalists, to get his case out there. Over the next couple of months, I wrote two articles for the news platform Open Democracy. They shocked people, and I was shortlisted for two investigative journalism awards but it still didn't feel like I'd done enough. That first meeting with Shirley has sent me on a journey to find out why nearly 3,000 people remain languishing in prison, some for over 15 years, many for minor crimes. There's no doubt that there are people in prison on IPP sentences who, if they were sentenced today, they would be on a determinate sentence, serve a year, two years, and they would be out of prison. And that's a scandal. It is. It's, It's terrible. I feel like I have a skeleton of a brother left. This sentence has finished him already. He's done his sentence now at least eight times over. It's just time to let him go. Well, a few months ago, the total number of suicides of IPPs was reported to be at 81. But in just the last two months, that number has shockingly gone up to 87. I've spoken to campaigners, prisoners on parole and inside, relatives of IPPs and even Lord Blunkett himself, who introduced the IPP sentence back in 2005 when he was Home Secretary. It's a decision he now regrets. I've indicated my considerable regret about this personally because obviously I was Home Secretary at the time so I carry 
prime responsibility. We, we didn't anticipate the way in which this would be implemented. We didn't anticipate the way in which judges uh, would interpret uh, the sentence and therefore uh, on very low tariffs would give an indeterminate sentence which has led people to be in years and years after they would otherwise have been released. And between us all, we made a terrible mess of it. The IPP sentence has been called a stain on the British justice system and a fundamental miscarriage of justice, but most people have never heard of it. The IPP sentence is uh, just entangles prisoners in an unresponsive bureaucracy. There's a constant sort of snakes and ladders, which is inhumane and um, equivalent to a sort of torture. And the whole thing is, is completely unjust and cruel. What you get are people being required to do more and more programmes, and yet that not leading to them able to demonstrate their reduced risk. So it's a bit of a Kafkaesque maze, really, which a lot of these IPPs seem to be on. Over the course of this series, I'm digging deep into the plight of IPP prisoners and their families to find out what's gone wrong with this sentence, which no one seems to support, but which people are still serving. To give voice to the people who feel they've been forgotten. And finally, to shine a light into the dark corners of the IPP prisoner story. Back to that stuffy room in Westminster, and the production team and I are sitting with Shirley, Hank Rossi and Roddy Russell, people who have been campaigning against IPPs for years. We're going to a debate in Parliament in Westminster Hall, which has been called by the Justice Select Committee to lobby the government to rethink their response to the committee's report on IPP prisoners. The report was published in September 2022, and its key recommendation was to re-sentence IPP prisoners so that they can work towards realistic goals for getting out. It's something that Shirley and all the IPP campaigners want to see happen to bring an end to the nightmare of indefinite detention for IPPs. But in February 2023, Dominic Raab, who was Justice Secretary at the time, rejected this recommendation outright. We now have a new Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, who has previously spoken out against IPPs, so there is fresh hope that the report's recommendations will be taken up by the Ministry of Justice. Alex Chalk. Thank you, Mr Speaker. There is a grave situation in our prisons and the Minister is being typically frank in acknowledging that. This is Alex Chalk speaking in 2017. One of the problems is the large cohort of prisoners languishing on indeterminate sentences for public protection. Can the Minister confirm that the government is committed to getting that number down as quickly as possible? You've come down to London for this debate. What do you hope for? We're all hoping that something positive is going to come out of this debate. If it isn't, where do we, where do we go from there, you know? Grasp it by the nettle and re-sentence all these IPP prisoners. Shirley also told me she'd emailed Lord Moylan, who's a sympathetic Conservative peer, a couple of days before, with some tragic news. She's connected with a vital network of IPP prisoners and their families. I sent an email to Daniel Molan after hearing of the death of an IPP prisoner in strange ways. I wrote, I bring the sad news that 
an IPP prisoner has taken his own life, a strange way his prison, 3pm yesterday. He could no longer cope with the psychological torture. I am also being told that IPPs are self-harming and only a matter of time before there is another suicide. He emailed me back yesterday evening. Uh, Shirley, I'm very sorry to hear that, that. Rest in peace. Please encourage them to cling on. The new IPP action plan will be out very soon, I am told. And there is change in the air. Did Lord Moylan know something we didn't? Are there new conversations going on behind the scenes? The frustration for the IPP campaigners is that while lords like Moylan and Blunkett are pushing to make changes, incumbent ministers of justice seem to feel unable to do so because of the political pressures they are under, mainly to be seen to be tough on crime. I spoke to Lord Moylan himself about this very problem. It's very interesting that the Secretary of State for Justice is constantly saying that his first job is to protect the public. But that isn't what it says on the door of his office building. On the door of the office building it says Ministry of Justice, not Ministry of Public Protection. But he sees his first job as protecting the public and there is strong support for that and no pushback from the opposition parties. And nobody wants to take the risk of letting them out because then you get the newspaper headlines. You know, this person was released by Dominic Raab or Robert Buckland or whatever. They are the guilty men, you know, whoever was the Secretary of State for Justice at the time. We all filed into the ornate hall in the heart of the Palace of Westminster. It's the first time I've been in there, but as expected, it was an intimidating room with high ceilings and a stifling lack of fresh air. There were just two rows of chairs at the back. The organisers weren't expecting a lot of interest from members of the public. Being in the room, it was apparent that the people who were there all hoped that change really was in the air. I regret that we have to have this debate. We spend a great deal of time in considering this issue. Sir Bob Neill, the chair of the Justice Select Committee, opened the debate. The seriousness of those concerns and the strength of feeling uh, about IPP uh, sentences was reflected in the volume of evidence we received. It was the largest number of submissions the Justice Committee has ever received for any inquiry that we have undertaken. And I had a look at all of them. I saw Now, Shirley de Bono, whose son is a released IPP prisoner, Told us that he name-checked Shirley as released, one of the people who had submitted IPP evidence to the Justice Committee to help inform their report. Even those who have been released and are serving at an IPP sentence in the community are immensely fearful of being recalled to prison. Shirley has become a high-profile campaigning voice, like many of the IPP prisoners' family members. I hope, perhaps, we'll be able, with changes in the department and a new Secretary of State, to have more scope for the Minister to be able to revisit the position in relation to this matter. And I agree with every single word... Next, the, the Conservative MP, James Daly, stood up. Can I just tell you about Thomas? The atmosphere was hushed as he told us the story of one of his constituents, Thomas White, whose case he's been following closely for years now. Thomas um, was sentenced in 2012. He received an IPP sentence for robbery of a mobile phone. And he was ordered to serve a minimum tariff of two years. This was only a few months before IPP were abolished. So if Thomas had been sentenced four months later, he would not be in prison now. That by itself tells a tale. 
Thomas is now aged 39. He has been in custody for more than 10 years. So he should have been released after his tariff for two years. Why is he in prison 10 years later? Because his mental health has taken a huge blow during that period of time. He has suffered with psychosis and various other mental health traumas. And what has this left in terms of his family? It's left a 13-year-old son without a father. Thomas is a fence. He never harmed a child. He hasn't got a criminal record of harming a child, but yet his own son is not allowed to visit him. But my nieces and nephews, they are allowed to visit my brother. He has been moved 16 times during that period of time. On many occasions, not given access to the appropriate courses because of his his mental health challenges and certainly on occasion he's not able to engage with some of the provision that's been provided but the provision has been sparse to say the very least. Because he was so mentally unstable he was never offered the courses and the truth is he was never in prisons that provided the courses. He couldn't meet the needs that the government was asking because there was none there. This is Clara White, Thomas's sister. I've been in touch with Clara for a couple of years now about her brother. This is the first time I've got I mean, to hear their whole story in detail. It sounds like he did some things there. I think uh, something about this detail is shocking and at times extremely hard to hear. And trigger warning: this story contains graphic descriptions of self-harm and isn't suitable for young or vulnerable listeners. He was facing a brick wall each time. And that took an effect on him eventually, and then eventually took an effect on myself. The log is recorded and may be listened to by a member of prison staff. If you do not wish to accept this call, please hang up now. Hello. Hello. Hello, mate. How are you, my friend? I'm all right, I'm all right. I'm glad you got through. Hank Rossi, who's a tenacious IPP campaigner and activist, has been speaking to Thomas White in prison for several years now. Yeah, okay, yeah. Contact like this is essential for reminding IPPs that they haven't been forgotten by those outside. You know, I lost my trust in the system a long time ago. It's not what it says on the tin. You know, they put out these, these courses and things like that, and it's never what it says on the tin. There's no, there's no proper help there. Yeah. Thank God, you know, in the blessed picture that I've got a good, strong family network now. Thomas is propped up by a lot of medication. If you take that medication from him or his medication is late in the morning, then voices will come back, which is so frightening for him. You're in a small cell. The door's locked when you buzz on that buzzer. No one's coming and you're hearing voices. He's completely held up by medication, and that's why he sounds he sounds okay. You would have never have been able to have spoke to Thomas in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. He, he would talk in Roman numerals until they they got the medication, all his medication that he needed. He was just, all his human rights was breached, he was just left. 
people who are serving life sentences will get them courses before IPP because everybody everybody knows that they are forgotten ghost prisoners. I had heard that Thomas had spent a considerable time in segregation while his mental health was diminished. So I asked Clara about this. When Thomas was very, very poorly, you know, I've gone over about him being in segregation for, this wasn't a week or two, this was months, four, five months. And I can't even imagine what that must have been like for somebody to be in segregation for that long with no human contact, hardly any, and just his Bible and just no, no one to speak to, no routine. That broke him and I witnessed that not by sight, I didn't witness it, but I witnessed every moment of that on the phone. This particular phone call, he had rang me and the echoes of the screams that he did down the phone to me because he wasn't having contact with anybody. Little did I know in 2016 that that was going to move in and take residence in my head. And I can still at times hear the echo of the scream of the sheer desperation that my brother was in. And I felt like I did every day of segregation with him. Solitary confinement, the, the definition is being on their own, locked away for 23 hours or more a day. My name's Dean Kingham, I'm a prison and parole solicitor. I represent Thomas White for his parole proceedings. I wanted to know from Dean why solitary confinement is used so widely and readily in prisons. Solitary confinement, as a result of the pandemic, is large-scale in prison because many prisons still operate that regime. So when there's someone with disruptive behaviour um, in prison, you would place them in segregation, um, which is away from the regime. You're only allowed out on your own. You, you get, you know, there's this minimum statutory entitlement to outside air and exercise, but in reality that doesn't happen. So you may, be, you may get half an hour out of day, an hour max. You know, it's obvious the, the detrimental impact it has, and the courts have, have recognised that. The courts recognise the long-term impact, but, you know, it's, it's hard for a prisoner to take a prison or a hospital to, to court, arguing over the fact that they've been confined for so long. He was out on exercise, this was from segregation in HMP Norwich Prison. It was raining, it was pouring down with rain and thunder and lightning. He stripped all his clothes off on the exercise yard and he danced in the rain. And I asked him why he did that and he said, because I never felt anything, I didn't feel anything for a long time. He said, and it made me have a feeling He'd not felt rain for probably years. He'd not actually been out on an exercise yard when it was raining. 
my patrol and go on the exercise yard, I'd, I'd follow the lines and think I'm making some sort of great, you know, um, pro- progress. Yeah. In, in walking the lines and, right. you know, getting, stripping off and dancing in the rain and... And were you getting, stuff. were you getting any sort of, like, counselling or therapy or anything like that? I was getting, I was getting nothing. No. There was, there was no, there was no, like, um, empathy or... It sounded to me like Thomas really needed specialist help rather than being locked away for months on end. This clearly was impacting on his mental health. His sentence was making him more ill. I'm saddened to say it. I am a, I believe this government is a, is a force for good. But on this occasion, the response has left me exasperated. We have seen... Back at the Westminster Hall debate, James Daly closed with a passionate plea and call to action from the Ministry of Justice to think again about their response to the Justice Committee's recommendations on IPPs. More and more people have committed suicide, more and more people have self-harmed, more lives destroyed, more families destroyed. For what? For a sentence that Parliament accepts is unjust. I genuinely believe this is a national scandal. And please, Minister... Please, let's bring this farce to an end, let's accept these recommendations, and let's give these people some hope. Over the course of an hour, the consensus across party was clear. Resentencing needed to happen. We were all waiting for the Minister's reply, campaigners hopeful that he would go on record that the Ministry of Justice had made a mistake and would finally reverse their controversial position. Uh, then Damien Hines, the Minister um, of State for Prisons, stood up. As to see With a soft the, voice and a rigid stance, um, he reiterated the government's position and all the energy drained out of the room. The government's priority remains the protection of the public and any resentencing exercise which aims to provide each IPP prisoner with a definite release date would inevitably result in the immediate release of a considerable number of offenders who have committed serious sexual violent offences and whom the parole board have previously deemed unsafe to be released. That heckling you can hear is James Daly, who was clearly frustrated with Damien Hines' intransigence. Ask my honourable friend about what he said, or what evidence basis does he have to make that statement? It is vital for public protection that those serving the IPP sentence in prison are released only following a thorough risk assessment. That is a judgment for the parole board. It's for this reason that we rejected the committee's recommendation of a full resentencing exercise for these offenders. Closed minds still seem to prevail in relation to the key issue of resentencing. So Bob Neill closed the proceedings. He seemed to be frustrated. If the government move, Parliament must move for it. Uh, I have a draft clause uh, to enact uh, the provisions, uh, the recommendations of the report for a resentencing exercise, and I shall not hesitate to move it uh, when the victim and prisons bill uh, returns to this court. I hope they will have support from across the chamber. Outside the hall, we asked Sir Bob what he meant by this. What would happen is if we can't get any movement from the government, they have the victim's bill, which has now been turned into a victim's and prisons, prisoner's bill, which is going to have to come back because they want to enact some perfectly good and sensible things about the victim's code and so on in it. Uh, but if it comes back uh, uh, in its current form, I would then seek to table an amendment uh, to add a new clause to the bill which would set up the independent expert panel uh, and the scheme and time frame 
uh, for doing the resentencing, for setting in train the resentencing exercise. Uh, and if need be, I push that to the vote, and uh, I hope that I might get enough support from my side and other sides to, to make progress with that. With a year to go before the general election, which may well bring in a change of government, this feels to me like it's Sir Bob's last opportunity to get his IPP recommendations through Parliament. The Victims and Prisoners Bill is currently being read in Parliament. We'll be watching closely and reporting on any developments. I'm very disappointed with the Minister's response. James Daly also told us he would keep pushing the government for change. I think the case for uh, the Justice Select Committee's proposals is overwhelming. Um, there's no evidence based at all to the government position as, as was set out today. Uh, and I hope that even though we've heard what we've heard today, that the new uh, Lord Chancellor and Justice Secretary will review matters as a matter of urgency. Really disappointing to see the Minister just double down, talk about the action plan and, and miss the point that there are nearly 3,000 people who are languishing without hope. Andrea Coomber from the Howard League for Penal Reform was also there and also disappointed with the Minister's lacklustre response. You know, there is this, this obsession about risk and it's got to the stage that this, this, these 3,000 people, IPPs, are basically being preventively detained you know, in case they do something and they come out. And IPPs do feel forgotten. And it's only when you hear things like that today from the Minister where you think, well, actually, they're not forgotten. Be, there's been a decision, you know, to keep them in prison. Sure, it's in the name of public protection, but it's, it's cheap. It's cheap politics. OK, so we've just come out of the Westminster Hall debate and walked down the road. I'm with Shirley de Bono, who was mentioned a couple of times in the, um, in the debate be by Bob Neal. What did you think came out of it? I wasn't happy with the debate at all. It is, like I said, this action plan's not going to work. I mean, um, James Daly give it his all, Bob Neal give it his all. I felt they were really forceful, more forceful than they've ever been before, especially, especially Bob Neal. You know, they're all there, they all give great speeches. But this minister, Damien Hines, he don't seem to be listening. You know, there's IPP prisoners in there that they discussed today, you know, that have been in there like for 15, 16 years, and they're not getting out because they've got mental health issues, so they're at risk. That's a risk. They can't come out. You know, and it's just, it's just pathetic. It's really, really, as campaigners, we've had a gets for living now. I'm actually running out of words because, you know, doing it for so long, and I am running out of words. What, what can you say? What can you say? Shirley has been doing this for 15 years, so she's had to deal with setbacks before. But if there's one thing I know about Shirley, she will find the words when she needs them. But let's return to Clara and Thomas's story. One thing that has come up frequently in my research is that many IPP prisoners come from a background of childhood trauma. Dean Kingham had a powerful point to make about this. A lot of the prisoners that I represent have had childhood trauma and issues, involvement with agencies such as social services from a young age, and some are very broken individuals that have been really let down by the system from a young age. And they go into prison, and some prisons make them worse. It's quite difficult to listen to your mum being knocked about downstairs and you're only four or five. And I think this is where we started to pray. So Thomas and myself was traumatised really from a young age. 
I went a different way. I followed my faith. Thomas just acted out in all different other ways. And we came from a poor council estate. He would get involved in 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 anything with the other teenagers. Um, if there was, you know, nicking bikes from sheds and things like that. And Thomas Thomas has been incarcerated really since the age of eleven. It wasn't actually young offenders. It was a secure unit. He was too young for young offenders. And he never went to a mainstream school. He grew up more in secure units from 11. He was then shipped to a young defenders institute. So he doesn't really know, he doesn't really know any freedom, any life. He's, he's been locked up from about the age of 11 in these mini prisons. And I know that it was a couple of, well, this, and it's a traumatic time for you recently because Thomas's parole was rejected. How have, how have you been and, and, and Thomas? Before I spoke to Clara, I'd heard the news that Thomas had just had his parole rejected. I asked Clara about the impact of this on them both. I was, it was really painful. I was, I was imagining and wishing that. I wish we had a lift that would take us to the, to the level where we need to be. But that hasn't happened. We've had to take the stairs, you know, and... It's been very hard, Sam. We're back at square one, almost 12 years later. My brother has been told he should remain in closed conditions, not even open conditions. Closed conditions means Thomas will have even more hurdles to jump over and the ever-present threat of being put back in segregation. ...and may be listened to by a member of prison staff. If you do not wish to accept this call, please hang up now. <laughs> Hello, Hunk. Hello, Tomo. How are you doing? I'm all right, yeah, as good as you were. When I got my knockback hank from the parole board, you know, it just put me in a state of depression. I felt let down. Yeah. I felt depressed. And I felt like, once again, the system is just leaving me to rot. So that's probably like my fifth knockback. You heard that right. It's Thomas's fifth parole rejection. And just to remind you, his index crime was stealing a mobile phone back in 2012. These facts are really hard to fathom. And it's not just the IPP prisoners who are victims in all of this. Their families are suffering too. So we got this psychological assessment, the independent one, which I went off and read. And I told myself, don't read it. Don't read it, Clara, don't read it. And I knew I shouldn't have read it, but I did. And I read it, and I kept telling myself, "You're all right. You're all right. You're fine. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna be, you're gonna be all right." And um, I had a psychotic episode. I was um, in psychosis for, I think it was about two and a half, three days. And when I came out of psychosis, my hair was all over the bedroom, all over the bedroom. I'd hacked my hair off. But I don't remember any of that, hacking my hair off, um, which is really, really scary. PTSD, just completely traumatised. You know, I'm so sorry to all my victims that I've ever caused any harm or disrespect to, you know, in my past and whatnot. I'm not the same person that I once was. Getting knocked back from from the parole time and time and time and time again and then you get this sheet of paper that just says life up yeah yeah and 99 years 
Yeah. And you know, to experience something as bad as that, you know, is you know, because I haven't killed anybody, Hank. No, I understand. Kill anybody, you know, and for me to be constantly knocked back all the time, you know, it just it, it, it leaves me in in a real bad state of depression, and my mental health just kind of subsides. You know, I'm a born again Christian. To me, it's only through my faith in God and so forth that's kind of got me through. I asked Bishop Mick, would he, would he join me today? We also had Bishop Mick on the call with us on Clara's request. He got in touch with her after hearing Clara tell Thomas's story on Radio 4. I felt like I'd abandoned my faith. I was serving IPP and not God. And Mick called me the accidental preacher. <laughs> I was serving serving God because I was standing up for injustice. Bishop Mick had a traumatic youth that rolled into a life of crime until he found God. To Clara, it seemed like destiny that they had met and a support line that she welcomed with open arms. She's the accidental preacher. She didn't know she's preaching the love of God, but she is. Mick told us why he called Clara the accidental preacher. It seemed completely apt. She's fighting against oppressiveness, and uh, if Jesus were here, that's where he'd be standing. You know, he'd be standing with the people who were who were dying, who were struggling, and she's preaching it. She's preaching the gospel. She just didn't know she were. My job was just to tell her she's the accidental preacher. Now she can do it deliberately. Mick has done his own prison time, so he has a deep empathy with the plight of the IPP prisoners. You know, for an ordinary con, you've got a date far off in your mind. It may be that's when it's looking like I'm, I'm going to be out. But when you don't have that, and your mental health suffering, and <sighs> you're almost hopeless, and that's what facilitates... Uh, Suicidal thoughts, that's what destroys people, all human beings. And for me, it's inhuman. These men and women are not animals, you know. They are human. And they deserve to be treated that way, you know. I can reason and understand and I have, I have these, the, you know, I have empathy. I have sorrow, you know, I have all of them. It gets me low, to be honest with you, sometimes, Hank. Yeah. And then the whole situation with, you know, my son not being able to see him and he's getting so older now and he's becoming into his own little human being. And it's like, you know, I've missed all those years, but, you know, and we've had to, like, basically nurture and grow one another through phone call conversations. It's a form of torture, isn't it? You know, it's it's... It's taking hope away. So we've got men and women who are being systematically tortured and the government are not prepared to end it. At the Westminster Hall debate, James Daly had raised the concept of risk being used as an excuse to reject the resentencing of IPPs. He brought it back to Thomas's story to personalise his point. How on earth is it viewed that he is a risk? And the reason why he is viewed is that he is a risk was because risk, incredibly, has become related to mental health. If somebody has a mental health issue, that is viewed to be a risk factor to causing harm. And we cannot treat people like that. So I'm then left in the uneasy situation 
that what we're actually keeping people in for is a concern, and it may well not be, it may well be a non-existent concern, but people's lives are being blighted by politicians deciding they don't want to have the risk of somebody coming out and doing something and then it being a headline in a newspaper. And that is not the way to make policy. That is not the way, I, the justice system that I served for 20 years did not recognise that as justice. And that is what this has come down to. It's crazy, I'm in prison now for something I might do. So, you know, I could talk to a blue in the face. I know inside what a good person and a clean-hearted person I am. Have Thomas and other IPP prisoners been kept in prison because of their mental health issues? Does he really pose a high risk? Or have his episodes of poor mental health been criminalised? Outside the airless Westminster Hall, I asked Angie Coomba for her thoughts. But that is not a reason. You can't lock people in prisons because they've got mental health problems. You know, the parole board's been put in this very difficult position of having, with this particular cohort of people, to use different tests and, and different require courses and all this kind of stuff but, but even when people have done all those courses if they say the wrong thing or they over talk or they give any reason for concern they're kept in prison do you yeah. think they've criminalized mental health basically in prisons for ipp prisons yeah i mean there is there is a mental health crisis generally in the prisons but in the case of the ipp prisoners their mental health has deteriorated directly because of the sentence in it it's it's rough and yeah it's, yeah it's on its back legs arcade yeah. Do you know what I mean? It really is like, it's the only way I can describe it. And this is why, you know, a lot of us lose our faith in the system, so to speak, because, you know, we're not treated like human beings. No. More time, we're treated like animals. This is the trap of the IPP prison sentence. Your mental health declines because of the sentence, and then you're seen as a risk and your parole is rejected. It's happened to Thomas five times now. He's trapped in a vicious cycle. It's a theme we'll explore in more detail later in the series. I mean, Clara, was there anything else that you wanted to say? I know you, you, you had a letter from, from Thomas. You also spoke to him. Back to my conversation said, with Clara. And I asked he her if to? Thomas had anything else he wanted us to know about. He has a friend in prison in in Garth prison who is also IPP and he's been self-harming for many years on his leg the abscesses and things have started to appear and he was taken from HMP Garth last week and had his leg amputated oh so, my god you can hear from my response that I was lost for words on hearing this story how did it? Sorry, how did it get to the stage of amputation? Was, was his? Did, was he not giving medical treatment, or what? Do you know? I think the hopelessness of the IPP sentence. He found a way to cope, which was in his leg. He had self-harmed for many years in the same leg. I believe Dr. Celia spread in his leg, and, and doctors couldn't save his leg. IPPs are now losing not just the lives, the minds, they're now losing limbs through self-harm. At the end of our conversation, we asked Bishop Mitt to say a few words to remind us that there is always hope in the darkness. 
prayer is speaking out, you know, truth in your desperation. You know, the reality of a, of life, the things that you can't change. You know, and it's it's turning to one another, to each other, to a power, and just crying out for help and support in it. You don't have to be a Christian to do that, you know. Leave a little space in your heart for these people who are trapped and just desperate to feel a touch of love. Since we recorded with Clara, we've had news that Thomas has been involved in an altercation with a prison officer and he's back in segregation. This may well affect his next parole hearing. We will be following his story closely and reporting back with any updates. If you want to get in touch, you can find me and the team on Twitter or Instagram at trapped underscore pod. If you want to do something, you can tell a friend to listen to this series. Knowledge is power, and the more who know, the harder it is for injustice to take place. If you want to do something more active, you can write to your MP and tell them to raise questions about IPP prisoners in Parliament. Some campaigners have started the petition hosted on the UK government website. Search the hashtag #JusticeForIPPs on social media for more info and the link. Next time I'll be going back to the early days of IPPs to understand the climate in which this sentence was born. Until then.